Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. Good morning. Welcome um, to City Church, and if you've been here a while, um, especially, I would encourage you to just look around uh, at this theater, because this is the last time we're here. Um, Okay, wow, and that was not exciting nor sad for anybody. Uh, And unless you're like a theater frequent, you'll be back again, but this is the last time City Church is here. Because after this, like right after service, we're moving all of our stuff into our brand new building that we got. And so, um, but this building has been amazing. We, just like this new place that we're going, this was such an answer to prayer. We, uh, we met for two weeks. A few of you guys were around when we first launched. We met for two weeks across the street at the transept. And um, week three, they were doing a wedding. We just found out basically that week. And so Tyler and I are calling like every venue in OTR and we stumbled across this place that was like just what we needed just in time. Um, And God knows that I don't love his timing on these things, but he has provided us like way better of a space than we could have asked or imagined. And I think he actually did the same thing again with this new place. So um, I want to talk a little bit just so like we're really clear about what's coming up. So on Wednesday, we're going to have our Christmas Eve service, and that's confusing because I know it's not actually Christmas Eve, it's Christmas Eve, 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 um, and there's some kind of branding we could do there, but uh, that's going to be our first service, first thing we do in our new building. It's uh, at 106 West McMicken. Uh, if you search it on Google, it's Philippus Church. And uh, so it's going to be from 7 to 8, then we're going to have coffee and hot chocolate and cookies afterwards, and I know I'll be doing like a little walk around if anybody wants to follow me, and I'd encourage you to follow me because the building's like large enough that you could get lost in it. And, um, but I'm, I'm like so excited for that service because I think it's going to be such like a sweet, it's always like a sweet family moment to do a Christmas Eve service, um, but I'm also really excited because this will be um, the first time that a lot of us get to see the building. And then a week from today, don't go to this place, don't go to that place. We have no church on next Sunday. Uh, But in two weeks, then we'll be at our normal, new normal church building, uh, Philippus Church. And um, I guess it's actually City Church. Uh, But, uh, and I want you to, thank you, I want you to show up at 930. Uh, And somebody was asking me this week, like, are we sharing the building with someone? That's a great question. I haven't talked a ton about this because... Uh, we wanted to like make sure we got the building, and we did. We are sharing this church with Philippus Church, and it's a super complicated real estate thing where we bought it from a developer, but then they bought it from the church, and now we're leasing it back to the church. So here's what that means. For the next, potentially up to the next year, we're sharing the building with the church that just sold it basically to us, and they have been so gracious. Uh, They've been amazing. Pastor Sam, I think, has become a good friend of mine. And, uh, but they are just an older church that has said, yeah, we probably just want to exist for like one more year and then we're going to kind of go away. And we want to, um, one, honor them so, so well. 
because they have been there for 130 years. And so I want to be the best landlord like in the world to them because they have sown into OTR and we just get to jump on their backs uh, and do what they've already started doing 130 years ago. But that means that we become a 9.30 a.m. church and they are moving their service back to 11. So uh, we aren't really sharing the building. It is our building, but we are leasing it to them um, from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. And then if they want to do weddings and funerals and events, like we just said, yeah, we would love to make space for you there. So 9.30 is when we're going to start meeting January 2nd and beyond. So... Um, and again, all this is on the website. Uh, I have a friend, Catherine and I actually, one, two of our best friends, they're named Zach and Victoria. And uh, Zach, we have a picture actually of the four of us, but Zach is one of my longest friends. Um, we were on the same AAU basketball team in fourth grade. We were both aspiring NBA players. It didn't really work out for either one of us, but, um, and so we were, uh, friends through elementary school and accountability partners in high school and roommates in college. And then Victoria is, was a girl that was in Catherine's sorority and they were friends and roommates. And then they went to the same conference, winter conference, and Catherine and Victoria both gave their life to Jesus at the same conference, come back and start this Bible study in a sorority and they become like best friends. And actually through no work of our own, they meet each other and they get married to each other. And so obviously like what a special thing, like two of our best friends get married, and we love hanging out with Zach and Victoria. They live in Washington, D.C., so we don't get to see them a ton, but um, here's the dynamic. We just hung out with them a couple months ago, but um, Victoria is a nurse by training, and so when Victoria tells stories, um, she tells you all the details, <laughs> and you know, and all the feelings that she felt during those details, and then as Victoria tells stories, she's even goes into telling you the feelings and the details of what she's feeling now about how she's telling you the story when she told you those feelings and those details. And, uh, and so when Victoria tells you a story, you get the full picture, and then you get lots of other pictures that you didn't even know you wanted or needed. And it's great. She draws you in in such a powerful way. And Zach, um, Zach is, uh, we went to business school together too in college. And I was in finance, and I was like, this is so dry. I hate this. I don't think I'm going to do this for my life. He was in accounting, which is even more dry. And he's like, I love this. This is amazing. Zach, for the last 10 years, has been an international tax accountant. I, like, fell asleep halfway through that phrase. That's so boring. <laughs> and, and he loves it, and he's good at it. Zach, when Zach tells you a story, he will give you just the facts. No feelings, just the facts. And actually, not even all the facts. Just the facts that are relevant to helping you understand what happened. He filters it for you. And uh, we were just with them, like, we were driving to Chicago. They were in Indianapolis. We had, like, one hour in a firehouse sub. And so we're going back and forth really quickly about life. And there was this moment, I forget exactly what they were trying to share with us, but they were sharing with us some update on their life. And it was towards the end of lunch. And I said, guys, Victoria started talking. And I was like, guys, just a quick heads up. We have to be on the road in 10 minutes. And they've been married six years now, and I could tell this was six years of uh, figuring stuff out. But they looked at each other, didn't say anything, but they almost just both knew this is Zach's time to shine. <laughs> because um, Victoria wouldn't get through the intro <clears throat> of the story. And so even though she started the story, Zach took over. No words were exchanged. I just watched this happen, and I knew, like, oh, this is, like, years and years of figuring out how we 
communicate in the dynamic. And here's the thing, when Zach tells a story and he starts sharing like lots of details, and you listen to Victoria too, but when Zach starts sharing details, you really like lean in because Zach's sharing something very intentionally. And when I read the birth narrative, we have two of them, of Luke and of Matthew, Luke is Victoria. And we've been in Luke for the last two weeks because uh, he's telling us the birth of Jesus. But actually, not, we, we can't start there. We've got to start with Jesus' cousin and, and then how Elizabeth, the mom, was feeling and even what happened to the dad. But then we move on there and Mary got involved and Mary was feeling some things when her uh, cousin was pregnant. And then Mary started saying some things and then an angel came and then another angel came and then Joseph got involved. And then all of a sudden they're traveling to Bethlehem. And by the time we get to the birth narrative, we're like two chapters in. And, and Luke gives you all of the details, and he draws you in to what was fe- being felt and what was being experienced there. And we love that. It's why we spend more time probably in the Luke narrative of Christmas than we do in Matthew. Matthew also works in tax, and, uh, and so he is a lot like my friend Zach. And so when Matthew leans in on some details, specifically in the birth narrative of Jesus, we also want to lean in. Because here's Matthew's, this is my summary, his basic birth narrative. Mary got pregnant, it wasn't Joe's, and then the Magi showed up. And the Magi went here, and then the Magi brought this, and the Magi talked to this person. And, and it's almost like he's saying, and I'm not, but it's almost like he's saying, look, yeah, the birth and like everything that was going on, Luke's got that. Let me tell you about these guys that showed up. And when Matthew starts to share details, specifically around this narrative, we want to lean in and say like, man, Zach doesn't mince words and neither does Matthew. Why, why would Matthew care so much about why these guys showed up? And so that is this morning. We've been going through a series mostly through the Luke narrative of Christmas, but this morning we're gonna be in Matthew specifically looking at why did he care so much about why these guys showed up to the place that Jesus was. So, Matthew 2 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so Matthew goes in, in Matthew 2, on these uh, people showing up called the Magi, which begs the question, who are the Magi? And in short, we don't know. So um, it was great seeing you guys this morning. We'll see you next week. Not next week. Um, we do have decent context and decent guesses for who they were. Uh, Tertullian, who was a really famous church father and historian, he lived at about 100 AD, so right after the time of Jesus. He said that the Magi were most likely astrologers or consultants to kings. The Magi were most likely astrologers or consultants to King Esther. In the book of Esther, Magi come up, 
And, uh, and the way that she, or the, this book describes the Magi, are, um, or consultants to the kings, are princes uh, who knew the times, who sat next to the king, who saw the king's face, which was a big deal, to see the king's face, and who were first in the kingdom. Daniel and his three friends, they also were taken captive into the land of the east, which is where the Magi came from. And Daniel and his three friends most likely, now Daniel was written in Hebrew, Magi is a Greek word, so it doesn't say this, but they seem to actually have been basically Magi, consultants to kings, uh, people who were educated in the literature and the science of Babylon from the east. And so, and it describes Daniel and his three friends, <clears throat> we know their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, it describes them as 10 times more capable as any of the other ones that were doing the job that they were doing as any of the other magi. Now, the one thing we do know, right, is how many magi were there? We don't know. I'm so sorry. That was a trick question. That was mean. And, uh, but we assume there were three because they brought three gifts. We don't even really know how many there were. We just know magi is plural, so there was more than one. And all of a sudden, these guys come out of nowhere, and they show up. Uh, rough, uh, a little bit after the time that Jesus was born. They were schooled in science and religion, and their job was to advise, and their job was to choose a king. One commentator says this, uh, historians tell us that no Persian was ever able to become king without mastering the scientific and religious disciplines of the Magi and then being approved and crowned by them. The Magi were kingmakers. They were, part of their job was to help choose a king. They were the intellectuals of the day. And I'll read this, and it reminds me that you can uh, pursue intellectual honesty and still pursue the presence of Jesus. Uh, I don't think that checking your brain at the door is something we have to do to follow Jesus. And I really believe that um, the Bible lends itself to both science, math, and history. Um, and so these intellectuals of the day, they start to pursue Jesus. And, and we want to, just for the next few minutes, zoom in on the Magi because Matthew, mostly because Matthew seems to say that it's worth it. And so uh, the Magi come to King Herod, <clears throat> and King Herod, um, he never learned a lesson, actually, that I had to learn in college. Um, I'm going to tell you about it. Stick with me on this. Uh, in college, I, you know, a bunch of young men go to school, and we're like, I've described us as semi-athletic, semi-active and so we got into weightlifting, or basically we just wanted to like, we said we wanted to stay healthy, which for an 18-year-old just means like look good with your shirt off. Um, and so we were like working out, but really when you're working out as an 18-year-old, all you care about is like that big number, like how many times can I squat 280? And when I work out now, my new goal is like how mobile can I be when I'm 80? And it's just so funny in, in like 12 years, how much, 14 years, how much my goal has shifted. Um, but it, the goal, primary goal wasn't actually how much you could squat, because as a college student, you could totally skip leg day. The big goal was how much weight could you bench press. And so uh, the goal was like, man, a 45-pound bar. And a bench press is when you lay horizontal and you like shove the weight up. And, uh, and it looked cool once you could get one 45-pound plate on each side. It's 135 pounds. And then you looked really cool if you could somehow also get a 25-pound plate on each side as well, 185 pounds. But the ultimate goal of all of these like jacked seniors in college was like, how quickly can we get to two 45-pound plates? 
which was 225 pounds. And um, I haven't told you any of my friends' names, <clears throat> so this is going to be hard for you to do, but guess which one of my friends, including me, benched 225 pounds first? <laughs> it was me. It was me. <laughs> and, and here's what happened right after I did it. I, I don't quite remember exactly, but I'm sure I grunted, flexed in the mirror, and then I called all my friends together, and I do remember this. I said, guys, um, great news. I did this first, so you will now call me two plate because I bench pressed two plates on each side, and you guys haven't done it, so you're going to call me two plate. And uh, for the next few weeks, I helped them out. I even started to speak in the third person, like, hey, guys, two plates hungry. Uh, what are we doing tonight? Uh, two plate would love to do blank. And, and they needed help because they still were used to calling me Chris. And so they'd be like, Chris, what do you want to do? And I'd be like, well, it's two plate. And, uh, you know, I don't really care. We can do whatever. Two plate's pretty open. And like three weeks in, I realized there was only one person that was calling me two plate. And it was me. And uh, I said, guys, what the heck? Like, we call him, and this is true, we call him cheese ball. We call him tool. Um, <laughs> great friends. I was like, why don't you call me two plate? And my friend Zach said, Chris, intentionally, Chris, we're, we call him Cheeseball because we thought that would be a good idea. We call him Tool because we thought he earned that nickname. You thought that you earned the nickname Two Plate, and you can't give yourself a nickname. <laughs> the first rule of nicknames is you actually can't give it to yourself. He said, that communicates insecurity and arrogance, <laughs> to which I thought, that's kind of true. Um, it was totally true. And, uh, and so, yeah, nobody ever called me two-plate until I met Luke Cohen, who actually only exclusively calls me two-plate. <laughs> I told him this story like two years ago. He doesn't even know my name's Chris, I'm pretty sure. He just calls me two-plate, so thank you, Luke. Um, Herod did the same thing, except it was much, much worse. He gave himself a nickname, King of the Jews. And he made everyone call him that. And he was more effective than me, mostly because he threatened death. Um, but he said, I, he took power. He wasn't actually even fully Jewish. That's crazy. Um, and he took power, and he said, you will call me king of the Jews. And so uh, setting that context, I want you to imagine the offense that he must have felt when a bunch of kingmakers come from other noble countries and say to the king of the Jews, hey, we've heard that the king of the Jews has been born. Where is he? We want to go and worship him. And Herod uh, probably rivaled me in arrogance and insecurity. I would actually say he might have exceeded me because Herod was white-knuckling power at that time. Because he probably knew, one, he's not even really fully Jewish and he's claiming to be king of the Jews. He also, we see this, he wasn't really qualified to hold the position. He didn't even know where the Messiah, the one that they were supposed to be waiting for, was going to be born. And so Herod gets deeply, deeply offended. And we see some of the things that happen after this comes from a place of deep offense of Herod not being willing to accept maybe there was one that was more qualified to be the king of the Jews. In verse 9, it says, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, stop right there, they would have been in a house by now. This is probably one to two years after Jesus has been born, um, which just destroys your nativity scenes, I know. Um, 
but they would have taken some time to get all the way from the east. So the shepherds and the magi likely never would have met and definitely would not have met at the manger. And so they come to a house because that's apparently now where Mary and Joseph were living is in a house. And it say they saw the child and his mother Mary and they bowed down before him and worshiped him. And then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so I want you to just imagine this scene. A bunch of kingmakers come from a foreign country. They're taught, they're literally schooled to look for what a good king would be, how a good king would act. And they travel from a really far distance away. And they come before this baby and they bring a bunch of really expensive gifts. And their response to seeing this baby, not your traditional looking king, is to fall on their face and be overjoyed and worship. Because they knew They were trained to look for this. They knew something supernatural had happened when they saw the star. They knew something supernatural had happened when they heard that the king was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And they knew that they were not dealing with just any ordinary king. But this king, even as an infant, was worthy to be fully worshipped. God, let us be like the Magi. Don't you want to be like the Magi? When they find a king of worth, they went all in. They traveled. The, the distance didn't matter. The cost didn't matter. And the, the humility of a bunch of noble men bowing down before a poor carpenter's son. But they knew that they had found something of worth. And as I was just preparing this week, I'm like, God, I want to be like them. I want us to be like them. That when we find a king worthy of following, which I believe we have that nothing is held back, no cost is too high, no sacrifice is too great, no distance is too far to worship a king that is absolutely and totally worthy of our worship. And so God draws near to the Magi. That's the whole point of the last three weeks is God comes near. And he draws near to shepherds who are in the midst of poverty and sorrow. He draws near to a man who is waiting for something his whole life, but he also draws near to the Magi. And what we can pull from this and and how we wanted to talk about this week is God can also draw near to us in the midst of joy. Uh, The context of the Magi's lives, what we know of them is um, it seems like they were doing okay. Like actually, I think they were doing well. We absolutely know that they had money. I mean, that's really evident from the gifts they brought. They, they were of upper status. They likely, almost definitely had good health because they just made a really long journey from the east. Um, they were noble, respected. They were from a good part of town. They were from uh, a nice part of the country in the east. And so the Magi actually weren't in some kind of crisis, not that we can read about from here. And so um, God, of course, is so, so good at drawing near to us when we are in like our worst moments. But God is not just in the business of drawing near when things are hard. God also is in the business of drawing near when things are good. It says, upon meeting Jesus, and we're assuming their life was going relatively well at this point. Upon meeting Jesus, they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. And we know there's this phenomenon in church that when things go poorly, people come back to church. Um, and I love that. I love that like, there is still sim- some semblance of like, man, I want to get back into a place that I know 
um, hopefully stewards the presence of God. Like after 9-11, church attendance spikes. Um, Catherine talked about this last week of how often people come back in big transition moments, like, oh, we had a kid, we have a new job, or we're looking for community. And I, re- I, I think that that's so good. But Jesus doesn't just make hard times better. He also is really good at making good times amazing. He's really good at magnifying the good things that are already going on in our lives. And the Magi, and I could say the same of us, there's no better person to invite into your moment of thriving than Jesus. I also think there's no better person to invite into your moment of hurting than Jesus. But the Magi, living good lives, rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. Um, Joy is most of what we're talking about this morning because God draws near in joy. And we know that joy is different than happiness, right? Um, Happiness often has to do with the happenings that are around us, but joy is a choice. Joy is um, our right. It's actually our right as followers of Jesus. Um, And joy isn't just a feeling, but it can become our nature. Jesus died to reconcile us back to God, and in God's presence is the fullness of joy. Joy actually over time, as we continually choose joy, joy can and should become our nature because Jesus was a man of joy. Jesus brought something that was so joyful to the world that the the shepherds couldn't contain it and the magi had to come and see it and Simeon said, look, this is enough for me. Jesus brought something so amazing to the world that the the response was often joy. And when you hear good news, um, even if you don't know it's true yet, you lean in, right? Like if you hear something that is, is good, our tendency is to lean in, even if we're not sure it's true. So let's say um, the FDA and the CDC and the FBI and everybody just says processed sugar is actually the best thing for you. You'd lean in, right? <laughs> Come on, amen. It's the most response I've gotten. I'd lean into that. I'd lean into that because, and I don't know if it's true, actually everything I've learned is telling me that's probably not true, but if a bunch of organizations are saying it's true, I'd lean in and figure out if it is, because that, if that's true, that is really good news. We love to lean into things that could be good news because we want to find out if they're true. The same thing was happening 2,000 years ago. There was so much buzz around this baby that was born and this man's ministry that people started from all over the world, started to lean in and say, we've got to figure out if this is true. Because if it's true, and they knew this, and they had a very unfiltered, very new version of the life of Jesus, if this man is true, if this teaching, if the miracles he did, if that resurrection is true, that's really good news. And so people started leaning in because they wanted it to be true, to figure out, we've got to, like, is this actually true? Because if so, this is good news. Luke did it. In Luke 1, very beginning of his gospel, he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty the things that you have been taught. There was so much interest that this man or this group of people, we don't quite know who, Theophilus was like, I got to figure this out. I'm putting my best guy on it. Luke's this doctor, but he's also really investigative. And man, it seems like you traveled with Paul. And so Luke, figure out if this is true, because if this is true, this is really good news. And this was at a time that writing anything was really expensive. 
recording anyone's life was like quite an undertaking. Today, everyone has a blog, half of us have a podcast, self-publishing is like super cheap, and still, uh, most of us will probably not have any biography written about us. At least, currently that doesn't look likely for me. Because, but yet, it's still so cheap, like it could happen. I think um, most of us could like self-publish something if we wanted to, and yet at that time, it was incredibly expensive. Only wealthy people were able to afford to have their story recorded, to have a biography written about them, and yet um, Luke says many, many have done this. Many have gone to the, uh, the trouble and the expense to write down the life of Jesus. We know Luke went to great expense, and this is a poor carpenter. What could possibly have warranted the whole world to be going up in interest to have the expense and the effort written about this poor carpenter? And Luke says many. So we can assume that there were probably more than four. Lots of people were interested in this life because they knew if this is true, if what this guy is bringing, that is really, really good news. The reason so many people documented the life of Jesus and the reason so many people were interested is because he brought good news of great joy. He introduced the true full meaning of joy instead of just fleeting happiness. And that's, I think, what this season does a better job than anything else of reminding us is that joy has actually come to the world. Um, David wrote about joy. David, uh, he was a king about a thousand years before Jesus, and he made a massive mistake that actually led to another massive mistake. He slept with a woman and then killed her husband. And uh, in the midst of that, David had the audacity to ask for a few things, because David knew God well. David said, look, I know I blew it. Please don't take me from your presence. Please uh, keep your Holy Spirit. Create a, a, a pure heart within me. And then he has the audacity to say this in Psalm 51, verse 12. And then he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. David, this man who is a man after God's own heart, had the audacity to ask God in a moment that he had just blown it for joy because he knew God was actually gracious to give it to him. He knew that joy wasn't something that God was finicky about but that he actually had access to the fullness of joy despite what he had done. Psalm 51 is a great blueprint if you think you've blown it. It reminds us that God isn't finicky with his grace or with his joy. Hebrews 12.2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That's Jesus. Jesus was a joyful man that was filled with joy. Galatians 5 says, The fruit of the Spirit, one of them is joy. So a spirit-filled life looks like we being filled with joy. Jesus was joyful. The Holy Spirit was joyful. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him. So Jesus in the business of joy. Holy Spirit's in the business of joy. The Father is in the business of joy. The language of the kingdom, the ethos, the, the nature of the kingdom of God actually is joy. We can have the fullness of joy because Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence is the fullness of joy. And this is what we've been talking about for the last three weeks. There's a lot of promises in the Bible that are just for certain people in the Bible. They are specific. And we have to be careful and make sure we don't hijack those because they were actually meant for that person. That's why context is important. But 
there are still quite a lot of promises in the Bible that are general. They are promises to everyone or anyone who's following Jesus. And one of them that we've identified over the last three weeks is his presence. Matthew 1.23, God has come and he's called Emmanuel, God with us. His promise is presence. His promise is presence. And according to Psalm 16.11, in his presence is the fullness of joy. So joy is now not this just circumstantial thing, but it is this promise and this unique access that we have because we have access to his presence. Um, God bankrupted heaven so that we could, in part, experience his joy. He took his most valuable asset and he sent him to earth so that he could reconcile himself to us and and we could be united back in his presence because in his presence is the fullness of joy. Guys, joy is awesome. God's awesome. And God gives us his presence. And in his presence, no matter what's going on, there can be joy. And if life is going well right now, we can have the fullness of joy. And God loves to draw near, not just when we're hurting, but also when things are going well. And so this morning, um, simply said, if, uh, if we just believe in God, if we just believe God is near, joy is there. That's all you need. Um, But every now and then, we need a tangible picture of what joy looks like. And so uh, we thought nothing better than your kids ringing bells and singing would be a really good picture of joy. And so I hope the kids are ready. Um, They're coming up. Jalen is going to lead them in a song. I know Jalen's been slipping out every time I start to preach the last few weeks. I know you thought he was going to like his green room and just hanging out. He's actually been going up to the kids' room, teaching the kids uh, this song. And, uh, and so this is our tangible reminder this morning that God has drawn near. And in God's presence, there is the fullness of joy. And Jesus coming to earth actually does tell us that joy is available to all of us. Um, that's the end of everything I have. Yet yeah, I don't see any kids. So uh, we're going to act like this was on purpose. And um, we got him. Ladies and gentlemen, the City Church OTR Worship Choir.